You have very likely used a GPS. What does GPS stand for? Global Positioning Satellite. This morning we're going to use an NPS. Anybody want to take a guess at what an NPS is? Of course, yes. Nehemiah perspective slide. Well done. That's perfect. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is what we've been studying for the last number of weeks. We are wrapping up today. It's our last session in Nehemiah. I want to quickly step back and give us an overview. The book of Nehemiah occurs in Jerusalem, uh, also in Susa, parts of it in Susa and Babylon, Persian cities, about 445 to 420 B.C. Three big ideas in the book of Nehemiah. There's a whole section on rebuilding, then one on revival, then one on reform. The rebuilding section has chapters 1 and 2 where Nehemiah is preparing the work for the building the walls around Jerusalem, rebuilding the city, and then chapters 3 through 7 where the actual building of the walls takes place through a lot of conflict and, and brilliant leadership. Then the revival sections, chapters 8 through 10, which we, we studied that a number of days ago. That was where they reestablished the Mosaic Covenant in their time and space. Really moving picture of how they reset themselves on God's truth. And, uh, and then the reform section is chapters 11 through 13. We'll be in 13 today, which is the resettlement of the people and a number of other things going on as well in the resettlement process. So what you've got in the book of Nehemiah is a renewed city, a renewed religion, and a renewed nation. Now, when you study Nehemiah on your own at home, which I hope you will, you, you will work through it like that. It's a, it's a pretty clear, simple package. However, we have done things a little differently. Okay, very differently. We have studied Nehemiah as a character study. Now, we've read almost every word of the text, but we've jumped around in order to focus on these traits of Nehemiah's amazing character. Eight great traits of Nehemiah's character. He was a person of prayer. He was trustworthy. He was politically adroit. He was skillful in managing life politics situations. He showed great vision. He knew how to build a team, which is very important for us in our homes in our, in our church ministries, in our workplaces. Uh, he was stalwart. He was selfless, a true servant leader. And then the one we're going to look at today, he was focused on glorifying and enjoying God. Now, look at those eight traits and, and recognize something. The Bible makes it very clear. The Bible reveals that God wants every one of us to exhibit those same traits. All God's people said, amen. So, let's get to work on the last one. Maybe the most difficult and important one, living to glorify God and enjoy Him. Hundreds of years ago, a truly remarkable gathering took place. It lasted about a year. It was called the Westminster Assembly. A bunch of dedicated pastors and theologians met to develop, among other things, uh, a long-term teaching tool. They wanted, they wanted to come up with something that would help generations of people stay focused on God. Borrowing from what had already been done in Germany and Switzerland, these Scots and Brits wrote a catechism which is a fancy word for a summary of biblical truth. Now, catechisms were made very simple, so they'd be easy to memorize. There are a few places, I, I need to say this side note just for a minute, there are a few places where their work is not ideal, okay? For, for example, they confuse justification, the salvation where a sinner is made right before God by faith in Jesus. They, they conflated that with glorification, where a Christian is made completely new with no sin nature uh, in eternity. I only bring that up because I'm going to crow about this great thing they developed at Westminster, and I don't want us to misunderstand and think that the Westminster thing they developed is perfect like the Bible is itself. That said, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is an astounding achievement. I have studied this a bit, and I think what is most impressive is what they didn't do. Listen carefully. What they did not do impresses me the most. 
Most people forget that Westminster was written during a time of great fear and conflict. The English civil wars were smoldering. The United Kingdom was rent, it was rent with conflict and darkness that makes our current political problems seem very mild in comparison. Given that milieu, the Westminster divines could easily have said something like this. They could have said, the main goal for people is to withdraw from the world and be safe. They could have said that. In fact, a, a very popular group called the Separatists said exactly that. There were a number of different little groups called the Separatists, and that's what they said. They said Christians should separate themselves as completely as possible. But our forefathers in London knew that the Bible calls for us to be light in a dark world. So they didn't fall for the Separatist trap. Here's another possibility they rejected. They could easily have demanded that, um, they could have said, mankind's chief goal is to make a completely uniform society where none are rich or poor. They could have said that. That's exactly what a group called the Levelers declared. They, they didn't call themselves that, but they were called that later. They were fairly popular, but their ideas don't mesh with Scripture. So the Westminster gang rejected that idea also. Let me show you one more. Here's the option that I imagine was most tempting for our forebears. They could easily have said this, the number one goal is to establish Jesus' kingdom on earth for him. That was exactly what was declared by a really kind of weird group called the Fifth Monarchists, uh, a theologically kind of strange bunch. But this wasn't just a fringe idea. Folks, the, the coming Cro uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, Commonwealth, what he would establish in the days after this was written, that, that to some degree was trying to establish heaven on British soil. Again, like the others, this idea is ultimately unscriptural. So the conclave in Westminster rejected that as well, although I'm sure it was very tempting for them. They held to the scriptures, and they made sure their catechism kept the main thing as the main thing. This was their number one statement. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The ideas they rejected... Think about those things I showed you that they didn't do. All of those are based on a passion to serve God. Unfortunately, that passion is focused on people. The, the false ideas are about glorifying and enjoying people. And as we face our own dark days, we should note that Christians today are tempted to do the exact same things. Think about it. We are tempted to withdraw, right, from a corrupt and sinful world. We're tempted to support utopian agendas. We are very tempted to try and set up Jesus' theocratic kingdom for him before he even returns. And just like 400 years ago, there are Christians who fall for these errors. Instead of continuing those mistakes, let's glorify God and enjoy Him. You know, we have recited this before, but I think in honor of our ancestors, we should do so again. Please stand with me. I'd like you to stand just for a couple of minutes, please. Let's recite, uh, responsively read number one from the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'll read the question, you read the answer. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Thank you. Please stay standing for just a moment. What inspired them to such a brilliant focus? What, what kept them from wandering off into one of those other popular possibilities? What can keep us from doing the same? I think we can learn from them. They were inspired by a few things. Most important to them, I've read a lot of their journals, most important to them was Jesus' instruction in Matthew chapter 6. Read with me, please. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, all together. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. You may be seated. Thank you. I can tell you that the moot at Westminster was also inspired by a number of biblical figures. Some of them were especially struck 
by the example of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an incredible guide. They were wise to follow him because Nehemiah was utterly committed to glorifying God in everything he did. Let me show you. Listen to this scripture. We read this last time. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 19. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. All right, with that in mind, now open your Bible to a very similar passage in Nehemiah chapter 13. Go to the last chapter of Nehemiah. Go to 13. Let's read a few verses where this same theme is repeated. We'll start at verse 14. Verse 14. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of God and for its services. Slide down to verse 22. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion in keeping with your abundant faithful love. Now the very last verse of the book, verse 31. I also arranged for the donations of wood at the appointed times... And for the first fruits, remember me, my God, with favor. Much like the work that would come 2,000 years later in Westminster, this is all about memory. Nehemiah teaches glorifying and enjoying God by remembering. Oh, by the way, that's the headline in your notes. Uh, you got a worship guide when you came and open it up on the left side. You'll see this headline. Nehemiah teaches glorifying God by remembering. Now, this is an idea with a long, important history. Nehemiah's statements of remember. Hearken back to the great Shema statement of Scripture. Here it is, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. The first word, Shema, is a very important word in Hebrew. Uh, it's your first fancy word you get to learn for today, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say shma. One, two, three. Shema. Very good. Shma. Very nice. Um, in this context, shema is a, is a word that has an intricate meaning. It, it means a, a fascinating combination of listen, remember, and obey. Okay? Matthew and I have talked about this before, right? Listen, remember, and obey. Israel is to listen to Yahweh the Lord. They are to focus. They're to remember. And in remembering, they're to live differently. They're to live obediently. This great statement is so important in Hebrew thought, it became known by just the first word. This whole thing that we just read is known as the Shema. All right? Last week, I was teaching out at uh, Pine Cove's uh, Tyler, Texas camps. The dogwoods, by the way, it was a beautiful week. The dogwoods were blossoming. The azaleas were beginning to bloom. It was just gorgeous. And while I was there, I, uh, I went and got some of the students at the Forge Discipleship Program, and I wanted them to do something for me for this message. They recited for us the Shema, and they did it in Hebrew and then in English so that you can, I think, hear some of the force of it. This is really fun stuff they did for us, except for the moment where the camera slipped in my hand. Just ignore that and, uh, and take a look. Done. That's great. That's the Shema. Jesus recognized that this Shema is the most important statement of the Old Testament. It's a summary of the Old Testament. Look, look what Mark chapter 12. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating, saw that Jesus answered well. He said to him, which command is the most important of all? 
The most important, Jesus answered, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Shema, Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is, this is what is in mind. Shema contains the great commandments that are part of Jesus' great commission. When Jesus says, go and teach all the world to obey all I commanded you, this is what he commands. This is it. This is what we're to teach people to obey. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever is predicated on this focus, Shema. A theologian pal and I, were, uh, we were working on this a little, and we came up with our own little uh, Westminster-style summary of the Shema. And end of Jesus' recitation of it is the greatest commandment. Here's what we wrote together. Uh, we said, the Bible teaches that all believers are to enjoy God as beloved sons. Did you know that? doesn't matter if you're male or female, Jew or Greek. If you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you are made a son of God. That means full inheritance as a son. August people said... Amen. We are to enjoy God as beloved sons, which involves the Father's teaching, guidance, fellowship, protection, and provision. Enjoying and glorifying God means we as sons listen, fellowship with, obey, and respect the Father. This connotes an everyday, every moment closeness with God when we rise up and when we sit down. When Nehemiah says, remember, you see, he keeps saying that, shema, shema, shema. We must understand his prayers in this context. Nehemiah's prayer is listening as well as speaking, and he is remembering, he is obeying. It's all part of Shema. Specifically, it is instructive to note what Nehemiah remembers. Remember is based on God's character. Don't misread this and think it's all about Nehemiah's character. No way. Nehemiah's character is shaped by and founded on God's character. In particular, he is moved by recollecting God's hesed. This is our second super important Hebrew term for today. It's often repeated through the scriptures. We have studied it before. Uh, the word hesed on the count of three. One, two, three. Hesed. Very nice. The word is hesed. God gives abundant hesed. Nehemiah captures the core of, of the triune God's personhood with this one character trait. He is the God of Hesed. Hesed is, um, is covenantal, undying, unbreakable love. It, it carries the ideas of goodness and loyalty, and it binds them up together in love. Hesed is a major, it's a major part of our church's annual theme this year. Our, our annual theme, use your powers for good. Based on Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Remember Micah 6, 8? Mankind, he's told you what is good and what is, it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love hesed, and to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Faithfulness is hesed. This is the same thing Nehemiah appreciated about God. God sparks hesed in his people, and he expects us to show the loyal love we've been given. John captured this concept this way in the New Testament. Read with me. John, chapter, uh, 1 John chapter, one, or chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. You take the underlined text. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. No pagan deity ever claimed to offer love like that, unconditional love from a character of pure love. No New Age mantra brings hesed. No religion, no system, no meditation, no self-actualization can provide hesed. Again, Deuteronomy 6 is surely in Nehemiah's mind as he prays. Deuteronomy 6 introduces us to Shema. I'm convinced the next chapter of Deuteronomy is also in his mind. Deuteronomy 7 introduces us to Hesed. Look, look, look. Deuteronomy 6 and 7, in a nutshell. Chapter 6 calls us to Shema. Re remember, it, it commands us to teach others, and it warns us against forgetfulness. 
But then you've got Deuteronomy 7, the very next chapter. It calls for action against idolatry in our lives. And it commands us to remember what God's has said. And it warns us against fear. Against fear. Put this together. God is the God of abundant hesed. How does one glorify him and enjoy him? Shema, remember his hesed. That's what conquers fear. That's what defeats idolatry in our lives, remembering God's hesed. Shema, hesed. This is in Nehemiah's mind. A buddy of mine knew I was teaching on this. He sent me this note. He said, Wayne, we must stop sometimes, remember the past, and fall on our knees praising God. Have you done that lately? Stop right now. What, what, whatever it is you're thinking or working on, stop. Think of a time. Think right now of a time when God rescued you, physically or spiritually. God rescued you. Think about that. Shema. Remember. That's God's hesed. Think about this. Think about a time when God corrected you or allowed you to face the natural consequences of your folly. That's God's hesed. Remember a moment, I hope this has happened to you. Remember a moment when you were reading the scripture and the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and convicted you? Oh my goodness, that's me. Think, think about that. Remember it. Cons consider this. Consider a moment when God blessed you beyond anything you could possibly ever deserve Think about it. All of that that you just thought about comes from God's hesed. He calls us to remember that. Shema. It changes how we live. And it is a major part of enjoying Him and glorifying Him forever. All God's people said? There's even more to learn here. As we say on the right side of your notes, look to the right side. Nehemiah teaches glorifying and enjoying God by doing. He doesn't just remember good theology, he acts on it. Doing God's commands matters. Deeds are important. They're important for God, they're important for humans. Look at verse 14 in uh, the Nehemiah 13 text we read earlier. What we translate, deeds of faithful love. You see that? That's a form of hesed. Nehemiah shows hesed of his own. He shows it towards God's temple and its servants, and this is shown in deed. Hesed love is not merely passive. It is active. It shows care and affection. So, suppose you tell me often that, that you love me but you rarely have any time for me. What conclusion do I reach about your affection? If you, if you say I'm welcome, but you exclude me from a supposedly open group, what, what, is that, what do your deeds really tell me? If kids, employees, let me ask you this one. If you say you love me, but you won't obey the first time I ask you to do something, are you really glorifying God? Every kid in here just lowered their eyes. It's hilarious. <laughs> Even you. All right. Doing what God commands matters. That's why Nehemiah talks with the Lord about his deeds of hesed. Same thing is true of his actions to ensure Levitical purity. Did you hear that? Go, go back to verse 22. And then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Um, you, you can think of the Levites' role like this. Um, Take the, the great hymn of the faith, uh, Be Thou My Vision. Um, it, it's kind of hard to sing a cappella, so we'll just say it. Say it with me, if you would. This verse, uh, Be Thou My Vision, we'll all say it together. Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. 
Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. All right, wonderful. That's a great focus song, is it not? Be thou my vision. Let's suppose that I ask the, uh, the Amazon Echo Dot in my office to, uh, to play that for me. And as Alexa often does, she messes it up, okay? And Alexa instead combines that with my shopping list, all right? Then I end up with this. Be thou my apples, O propel of my heart. Deodorant be all else to me, save that Pop-Tart. Thou my ice cream thought by day or by night, waking or icing, thy cake my light. All right? Is that okay? Is that good? No. Now, when you, when you mix what doesn't go together, you ruin both. In the same way, the Levites are supposed to be set aside to serve God. They, they have been letting profane things in the gates, making themselves useless. Nehemiah resets their purity, which glorifies God. Nehemiah does God's deeds. And by the way, that includes praying. You know, praying itself glorifies God. Praying itself allows us to enjoy Him. Praying is not doing nothing. In fact, it is, it is an active deed. Quite often, praying is the most important thing you can do. A very wise friend wrote me about this, uh, saying this. He said, Wayne, prayer is the most critical deed for me. Because it's not easy. Get this. Boy, I relate to this. He said, it's way too easy for me to take pride in outward obedience. But inward obedience and prayer is humbling. In my case, I have to keep asking God to make glorifying Him the focus of my life and asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to do what glorifies Him with the right heart attitude so I can enjoy Him. Amen. I'm with you. And so is Nehemiah. All right, let's cover one more of his deeds. Nehemiah sets up for donations and offerings to continue after he's gone. Look at verse 31. I also arranged for the donations of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. This seems to be describing a legacy gift, something some of you have done. Nehemiah wants good deeds to continue after he passes. He knows he's not going to need money in heaven. So he apparently arranges a will to make sure that, that, that whatever he has goes as worthy gifts to God's worship. And it's specifically about worship here. Do you see the wood mentioned? The wood? That, that would be today like leaving money in your will for continual upgrades to your church sound system. I'm being totally sincere here. In that context, God could not be glorified without wood for the, for the celebrations on the altar. In a similar way, we struggle in large modern churches to worship God effectively without amplified sound. So our sound system is made of wood, in essence. All right. In his life and legacy, Nehemiah teaches us to focus on God. That doesn't mean just sitting still. He enjoys God. He glorifies God by doing Scripture. This includes the laws of the gear. Okay? This part's really important. Go to verse 23. Go back up to verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God. God made him king over all Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, 
the son of Eliashib, the high priest, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. All right, this, this usually leads to mail. I know what you are likely thinking. I know what you're thinking. In that, in that roadrunner voice that you like to use when things don't seem to fit together, you're saying, beep, beep, peck, peck, beep, right? And which we all know translated means, it's Nehemiah being unscripturally prejudiced against foreigners here. Great question. Thank you so much for asking. Um, as I summarize in our notes, I, I put this in bold and give it in your notes so you would have this to remember. There appears to be a disconnect between Nehemiah's strong stance against foreign engagement in Israeli lives and, and Scripture. I mean, after all, the Mosaic command is to treat sojourners well. Yet, let me comfort you, there's no contrast. No contrast between Moses and Nehemiah actually exists since there are different ideas at play. Look here. The key word in Moses' command, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 18, is ger. Ger means a stranger who clearly wants to live by Israel's law. That's your third fancy Hebrew word for the day. You get to say ger on the count of three. One, two, three, ger. All right. It is a very specific term. It comes into English pretty sloppily. Um, we don't have a word that's just right. Foreigner is fine. Sojourner is fine. But they're incapable of capturing the most important aspect of the Hebrew word ger. Ger is a person who wants to live among the, the Israelites and willingly chooses to abide by all of the Hebrew law. In contrast, Nehemiah uses two other Hebrew words for foreigner. He uses nokri and Arab. Arab, we don't have time to go into. It appears in other parts of the book. It's a word for syncretism. It's, uh, it's things that are mixed together that don't belong together. Both these words, nokri and Arab, represent things God expressly forbids. Now, the term in Nehemiah 13 that we just read is nokri. It comes from a word meaning stranger things. Seriously, he thought of it before your favorite TV show did. Stranger things, it describes an unlawful foreigner. Neither of these are ger, people who want to live in peace, according to the Scripture of the Hebrews. Nehemiah is not here at all disregarding God's call to ger. He is not disregarding affection for the ger. He's doing God's will toward the nokri and the Arab. Remember, remember this. All people were allowed to join Israel. That was a totally unique opportunity in all of the ancient world. No other people group said anybody can join us. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. But only those who are willing to abide by Israeli law, the ger, only they are to be welcomed. How does one glorify and enjoy God? By loving the ger and by not accepting unbiblical nokri. Of course, you're looking at that and you're wondering in your internal uh, Wiley Coyote voice, Wiley Coyote genius, one of my favorite voices. He says, why don't more of us do that? Why don't we love the gare and call out the no Cree? Great question. Thank you for asking. There appear to be three major and serious problems that keep us from living out the law of the gare as Nehemiah did. And yes, even though he beat men and pulled out their hair in his context, I am telling you Nehemiah is an example of wisdom. Let me walk through where we fail in our day. This will take just a minute, but I think it's important. First, we don't live what God says about Arab because we think a little mixing is okay. You know we do. You and I believe the lie that a little of what is set aside for God can be mixed with a little of what is clearly against God and there's really no consequences. It's okay. Right? Does that work out? How's that work out? Let me, let me, let me put it this way. Let's be honest. We're among church family here. Let's, let's do this. If you, at any point in your life, were a believer in Jesus Christ, but you went out with a non-Christian, somebody you knew was, had rejected Jesus Christ as Savior, 
You're a believer in Christ, but you went out with a non-Christian. Raise your hand really high. Be brave. This is our family. Raise your hand really high and hold it up. Okay, kids, look around. See those hands? You talk to any of us. You talk to us, and we will tell you from experience what Scripture tells you, which is that, that God forbids Arab for a good reason. Okay? Arab is, that is not to be confused with Arab, which is a, a totally different and much later thing. All right. Second, we don't live what God says about no Cree either. Do you know why we don't live no Cree? We don't live Arab because we think a little mixing is okay. We don't live what Nehemiah would teach us about no Cree because we're so into empathy. And empathy is a horrible trap. It is woolly-headed thinking. Yes, I said that. Empathy is bad for you. And it is bad for your society. Let me explain. No would take too long. Let me sum up. Um, 2016. Dr. Paul Bloom of Yale University wrote a really persuasive summary. He had a very large body of research spanning many decades. I want to give you some selections from his book, Against Empathy. All right? This is going to be hard for some of you. Just take a deep breath and stay with me. Don't run away. All right? Uh, Bloom says this. Though there are obvious ideological differences over who deserves our empathy, empathy is one of the rare political sentiments that still command wide consensus. And that's a shame. Because when it comes to guiding our decisions, empathy is a moral train wreck. It makes the world worse. When we have the good sense to set it aside, we are better people and make better policy. He explains. Uh, He describes emotional empathy at length. And then he says this. To feel what another is feeling is an important part of life. Uh, Such empathy amplifies the pleasures of sports and sex. It underlies much of the appetite we have for novels, movies, television. Most of all, people want to share the feelings of their friends and romantic partners. It's a basic part of intimacy. But emotional empathy is a different matter when it comes to guiding our moral judgments and political decisions. Research, recent research in neuroscience and psychology, to say nothing of what we can see in our own everyday lives, shows that empathy makes us, listen carefully, empathy makes us biased, tribal, and cruel. He then, he then cites many, many, many statistics. He goes into a whole lot of studies that are very fascinating, and he says this, vicarious suffering, feeling somebody else's pain, which we suppose is good, He says, here's what it does. Vicarious suffering not only leads to bad decision-making, but it also causes burnout and withdrawal. I'm a pastor. I have seen it many times among pastors. Causes burnout and withdrawal. Compassion training, by contrast, led to better feelings and kindlier behavior toward others. Compassionately valuing the fates of other people. That's what compassion is. Empathy is feeling their pain. Compassion is caring about what is best for them compassionately valuing the fates of others has all the benefits of empathy and few of the costs. He wraps up with this. Empathy seems like a gift, one that enhances the life of the giver. And that's the problem with empathy. Deep down, it's really about me and what I want to feel. The alternative, careful reasoning mixed with more distant compassion, seems cold and unfeeling. The main thing to be said in its favor is that it makes the world a better place. Close quote. I can convincingly argue that Nehemiah exercises reasonable compassion. I know, you're seeing him pull guys' hair out. But if we go into his culture and put that in context, he's showing compassion. He doesn't fail the no Cree test. You know why he doesn't fail it? Because he doesn't fall for the trap of empathy. He cares very much about what is best for these people. That's compassion. If you fall for empathy, you will, never, you will never identify the no Cree, and you won't do what's best for people. 
I hate to be the only voice in America saying this, but please be compassionate and not empathetic, like Nehemiah. Finally, we ignore God's commands of, regarding the gear because we're sinful. We ignore the commands about Arab because we think things can mix and they, and they can't. We ignore no Cree because we fall for empathy instead of much better compassion. And we ignore Gare. Nehemiah passed all three tests. We fail all three. We ignore Gare because we are racist and we are scared and sometimes we're just plain selfish. This is universal, by the way. It's not limited to this country, but it is nonetheless unacceptable. Missing the Gare distinction has led to some awful theological problems. For example... Our otherwise brilliant Afrikaner theologian brethren, uh, 150 years ago, Afrikaner theologians declared that all blacks, even their brethren in Christ, all blacks are de facto no Cree. That's what they, they, that's what they said. They went to the Old Testament and they used this word, no Cree of them. They also used Arab of them. That set the stage for the evils of apartheid. Peaceful cultural partners, not to mention brethren in Christ, were treated like outsiders. It's ridiculous. Now, to be complete, our South African brethren should be praised because they willingly and on their own initiative voluntarily work to dismantle that evil. But we've got to do the same. We must do right by the gear. Listen, we must do right by the gear or we will neither glorify God nor enjoy Him. Our mistreatment of the lawful visitor will erode our fellowship with God. Okay, let's summarize in one word what we've learned today from Nehemiah. One word, Nehemiah teaches glorifying and enjoying God by, one word, focus. As we noted earlier in Nehemiah, these statements of remember me, my God, with favor that we see throughout the book, these are not the crowings of personal aggrandizement, remember me, nor are they whining. Somebody read it like, whining, please, of somebody who's, please remember me, doubtful of his reception. No, these are statements of focus. That's why it's Shema that he uses. Nehemiah is so focused on God and his word, he makes certain that the right things are done the right way even when nobody else does. Suppose, try this on for size, okay? Suppose God commands in scripture that you are to replace the toilet paper roll every day, all right? You, yes, gentlemen, you. Okay, you've got five girls in your family. Every hour, whatever. Um, it's a scriptural must. It is ordained by God that you replace the toilet paper roll every day. When you say to the Lord... Remember, I changed the role today, Lord. Is that, is that self-aggrandizing? Is that, no, you're just, you're just reporting in. You're telling the boss, Shema, I, I, I listened, I remembered, and I obeyed. I did my job. Un unless you turn the role to come out behind instead of over the top, <laughs> you have done what God asked. Do you not know that do you not know there's a scriptural issue? Scripture commands for the toilet paper to roll over, not under... God says to Israel, Genesis chapter 32, the sun rose upon him as he crossed over. <laughs> Exodus chapter 7, stretch out your hand over the water reservoirs. Okay, that's a joke. The Bible doesn't really comment on the direction of toilet paper, but it does comment on focus. By focusing on the Lord, we are positioned to enjoy him, to glorify him, to shema about his hesed. About 500 years after Nehemiah, a bunch of people were standing, they were standing right outside the walls that he built, right outside those walls, and, and they were focused. They were focused on Messiah Jesus who was riding into the city as had been prophesied in God's word. They were enjoying God the Son. They were glorifying him, but less than a week later, they were either hiding away or they were shouting, crucify him. When things got tough and they became disillusioned, they stopped focusing on God and his word. 
Thank goodness we're never like that. But we are, aren't we? We need to focus on God. Just like those UK theologians in the midst of an ugly civil war. Just like Nehemiah. Focus on God. Let's close by reading one last passage responsively. Hebrews uh, chapter 12, uh, 1 through 3. You get the underlined text. Therefore, uh, and the therefore here is talking about the great things Jesus has done, who he is and what he's done for us. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Focus. Prayerful focus like Nehemiah's keeps us from growing weary and losing heart. Focus on God is the key to glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that we will focus, that we will glorify and enjoy You because even when there is disillusionment and, and difficulty and pain and social unrest, we are content in our God. Lord, I thank you for the offering we're about to take. It is, it is a privilege, and it's an excellent moment of focus. I, I don't know about my brethren, but my mind tends to go where my money is. And so it's an honor to give to you, if nothing else, just as a great way to focus. Thank you for using these gifts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.